0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Advances in Pediatric Growth Hormone Therapy, Visualizing the Impact on Individualized Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash VUG860. Downloadable practice aids are also available.
1: Hello, this is Brad Miller, a professor of pediatric endocrinology from the University of Minnesota Masonic Children's Hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to this educational activity on pediatric growth hormone deficiency. We will be learning how current and emerging formulations of growth hormone therapy medications can be incorporated as part of the patient-centered approach to treating pediatric growth hormone deficiency. We'll begin with diagnostic evaluation. Short stature is the most common reason for referral to a pediatric endocrinologist. Pediatric short stature represents normal variants of growth, but in some children it is a consequence of a serious underlying growth hormone deficiency. There are a number of pathophysiologic etiologies of short stature, including genetic syndromes, being born small for gestational age without adequate catch-up growth, having a skeletal dysplasia such as achondroplasia, having idiopathic short stature, Chronic systemic diseases such as chronic kidney disease, intestinal inflammatory disease, or disorders of the growth hormone and IGF-1 axis, many of these conditions are rare, affecting less than 200,000 people in the United States. It's very important to begin with the physical examination and oxology. Regular height measurement is an important means of monitoring health status in children and has been described as an important vital sign. Children growing along their growth curve, if they are drifting down percentiles over time, that increases the likelihood of serious cause of their growth failure, including growth hormone deficiency. And then presence of dysmorphic features, body disproportion, or other signs and symptoms may also be rationale for that referral. I think it's important that we think about the diagnostic clues in the medical history and physical examination that we make sure that we're measuring kids on the appropriate chart for the local population, and that a diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency does not require a specific height cutoff because children that are very young or who have had a recent insult to the hypothalamic pituitary axis may not have fallen off the curve yet, but still have significant growth hormone deficiency requiring treatment. The diagnostic workup should begin with the general pediatric screening tests, looking for anemia, inflammation, liver and kidney function, and thyroid disease, as well as celiac disease. Once that is performed, then we can consider more in-depth endocrine testing that could include growth factors, puberty hormones, growth hormone stimulation testing, and IGF-1 generation testing. And then for genetic evaluation, we want to consider a karyotype in any girls less than the third percentile to evaluate for Turner syndrome, but in boys and girls, there may be other reasons to refer to a geneticist and to consider specific genetic testing based upon the patient's phenotype. When we think about more specific diagnosis, investigating defects in the growth hormone and IGF-1 axis, if we suspect an abnormality in the growth hormone IGF-1 axis, we begin by measuring an IGF-1 level. If it is low, we proceed to growth hormone stimulation testing and or imaging of the hypothalamus and pituitary by MRI. If there is a low peak on growth hormone stimulation testing or an MRI image that is suggestive of an abnormality compatible with the diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency, you have your diagnosis. If the growth hormone level is normal or elevated, then you could consider an IGF-1 generation test to evaluate for growth hormone insensitivity. If that initial IGF-1 level is normal or elevated, we want to look at children who may have small for gestational age or microcephaly that point us in another direction diagnostically. Otherwise, consider IGF-1 insensitivity as the potential diagnosis. So it is important to recognize that the current guidance recommends against reliance on growth hormone provocative testing as the sole diagnostic assessment. And I think it's important to realize that if you have a child who has low growth factors and other components that are consistent with growth hormone deficiency, but a normal growth hormone stimulation test, it is not the tiebreaker. Peak growth hormone values can be different among the provocative agents and are inconsistent in intrapatient and interpatient reproducibility. So if you repeat the stem test on a child, you may get different results. The responses depend on the BMI and are considerably lower in obese children. And unfortunately, the growth hormone stimulation tests, though we rely on them heavily, have limited sensitivity and specificity with different assays leading to misdiagnosis and confounding our clinical management. It's also important to recognize that harmonization of the growth hormone assay is needed, so we want to make sure that we're using the best assays and the best reference samples to compare them. We want to use the somatotropin standard assay. We want to make sure that we're using the right reference data. Sex steroid priming has been recommended in prepubertal boys that are over 11 and prepubertal girls over 10 who have an adult height prognosis within negative 2 standard deviations of the reference population. That recommendation for sex steroid priming continues to be controversial around the world, but is in the most current recommendation by Grimberg in 2016. It is also recommended that we do not use spontaneous growth hormone secretion in a clinical setting. So essentially a random growth hormone level has not been felt to be beneficial and 12 or 24-hour sampling has felt to be too invasive. So no provocative testing may be appropriate in patients with oxological criteria, hypothalamic pituitary defect, and deficiency of at least one additional pituitary hormone, or in newborns with growth hormone deficiency due to congenital hypopituitarism who is hypoglycemic and does not attain a growth hormone concentration greater than 5 micrograms per liter, who has deficiency of at least one additional pituitary hormone, and or the classic imaging triad with ectopic posterior pituitary and pituitary pituitary hypoplasia with abnormal stock or other classical imaging findings consistent with pituitary hormone deficiencies. So one important question is, is genetic testing a new direction along the roadmap for investigating short stature, and when is it appropriate? So a growing number of genetic causes of short stature affecting the growth plate and the pituitary growth hormone IGF-1 axis are now recognized, and so making the diagnosis of a genetic condition may help predict the response to growth hormone therapy. There are several forms of isolated growth hormone deficiency, specific syndromic forms of multiple pituitary hormone deficiencies, severe short stature, body disproportion and or skeletal dysplasia, and SGA who do not show adequate catch-up growth are all categories of children who should be considered for genetic testing. Patients with syndromic short stature may warrant referral to multidisciplinary assessments at a specialized growth center with expertise in genetic diagnosis with genetic counselors available. I also think that we are identifying a number of children with no phenotypic differences other than short stature, where genetic differences are being shown to make up a larger proportion of that population, where there may be benefit in testing children purely with short stature, but at this point in time, it's recommended for the isolated group of children that are more severely affected or have some other components that suggest the presence of a genetic difference. So what's happening in the field of growth hormone deficiency and what is our current available therapy and the emerging therapies coming? Recombinant human growth hormone was approved by the FDA for treatment of pediatric patients who have growth failure due to inadequate secretion of endogenous growth hormone in 1985. Since 1985, it has been demonstrated that it has significant benefits in terms of increased growth, achievement of near-normal adult height, improvement of quality of life for this population of children with growth hormone deficiency, and is strongly recommended for this indication based upon these benefits. This shows dose-related responses to two years of daily growth hormone therapy, where in the left panel you can see the lowest dose of 0.025 milligrams per kilogram per day, in boys showing a delta height SDS and the dose response with 0.1 milligram per kilogram per day in that group. The most typical dose that people use in clinical practice is the middle dose of 0.05 milligram per kilogram per day. And interestingly, in the girls, the 0.05 and the 0.1 gave similar responses. Whereas if we look at the IGF 1 response, we can, the boys demonstrate a growth are a linear dose response to growth hormone doses, whereas in girls we see an improvement from 0.025 to 0.05, but not a significant higher value in the 0.1 mg per cube per day. When we think about long-term outcomes for growth hormone therapy, the near-adult height outcomes based upon phase 4 registry data still shows that despite taking growth hormone for a number of years, children still do not achieve a near-adult height that is within the expected range for their population. So there's still something missing from our therapy, whether that's dose adequacy, whether that's Sufficiently early diagnosis, whether that's adherence and compliance or persistence, those are all important questions to recognize why with daily therapy we're not quite yet achieving a normal height outcome. So non-adherence to daily growth hormone therapy is a common problem and is associated with significantly reduced linear growth. And you can see that when you shift from the parents of children 5 to 12 and to teenagers aged 13 to 17 with an increase in the non-compliant and skeptical and a reduce in the perfectly compliant and motivated. And so that non-adherence is likely a component of our lack of achieving the ideal outcome of normalizing height. So what are the factors that might affect adherence to growth hormone therapy? They are disease related, the fact that they don't feel ill, so if they forget a shot, it doesn't make them feel any different. Patient related, how they interact with their doctor, the age and stage of development, understanding their disease. Treatment related, the number and frequency of doses. Then health system related, are there delays in shipping the medicine from the pharmacy? Is it denied by the insurance? And then physician-related, is the physician and his or her team able to communicate well with the patient to emphasize the importance of the medication to help answer questions for the family? And is the physician and his or her team medically competent in translating that information to the patient? So medication persistence is also part of a reason why we may not be achieving our height outcomes. In a study from the answer registry in 826 children with growth hormone deficiency, we analyzed the reasons why people discontinued treatment. In about 35%, it was because they were done growing. And that was a decision made by both the parents and the provider together. Unfortunately, 28% stopped because of insurance issues. 4% stopped because of non-adherence, and then a few were lost to follow-up or had adverse effects that led them to discontinuing treatment. But I think the key point here is that a number of children stop even though they have not quite reached their adult height yet. We have to remember that giving daily growth hormone injections is not physiologic. When we look at the normal profile of growth hormone secretion, It pulses throughout the day with most of the peaks being at night. And then if you look at the profile of a daily injection, the daily injection does not mimic the normal growth hormone secretion profile. So what we've been doing for years has been working and helping children grow, but it's still not quite matching what the body naturally does. So as we think about new products coming in the future, Ideal attributes of a long-acting growth hormone would be to decrease the inconvenience, improve adherence, maintain the IGF-1 in the physiologic range through most of the treatment cycle, no injection site reactions, no lipodystrophy, minimal pain with a small needle size and low dose volume, and a cost comparable to daily growth hormone therapy. So I'd like to talk about the emerging long-acting growth hormone preparations, and I'll focus today on those that are emerging for potential use in the near future in the United States. I'll begin with Lonapeg somatropin by discussing the mechanism of action. You can see the prodrug where a carrier attached to native growth hormone by a linker protecting that growth hormone from degradation and elimination. That linker is cleaved at body pH and temperature to release the somatropin or growth hormone in a stable pattern. So the linker is essentially a timer that slowly releases the growth hormone from the prodrug to interact with its receptor. And then the carrier is cleared by the kidneys. This was approved for treatment of pediatric growth hormone deficiency in August and it will be administered with an auto-injector using pre-filled cartridges of nine different strengths. The HEIGHT trial is the main clinical trial that compared once-weekly lonapeg somatropin to daily somatropin in a head-to-head comparison at the exact same dose. The FLIGHT trial was a 26-week study where children were previously on daily growth hormone and then transitioned to once-weekly lonapeg somatropin. And then the enlightened trial is the extension trial for both of those studies. So children were either receiving once-daily somatropin or once-weekly lonopeg somatropin in the two trials, and then they transitioned into ENLIGHTEN, where they were all receiving once-weekly lonopeg somatropin. So to look at the clinical outcomes, the growth velocity in the children receiving once-weekly lonapeg somatropin was 11.2 centimeters per year versus 10.3 centimeters per year in somatropin. That treatment difference is 0.9 centimeters per year, so it met the FDA's criteria for clinical non-inferiority, but it was also statistically superior, showing that there was improvement in growth in the children receiving once-weekly lonopeg somatropin. And as we look at children that continued on lonopeg somatropin in the enlightened extension phase, height SDS improvements continued through that long-term extension study as late as two years into treatment. I'll now switch to Somapacitan. It was the first long-acting growth hormone approved by the FDA. It was approved for use in adult growth hormone deficiency. It's administered via a single-use pen, and the trials for the REAL-4 study studying Somapacitan and pediatric growth hormone deficiency are expected in early 2022. As I mentioned earlier, the clinical trial for children with SGA was completed in May, and we are expecting those outcomes soon. It's important to look at how does this molecule interact or differ from daily growth hormone. So they took the 22 kilodalton native growth hormone and made a single amino acid substitution to leucine 101 to a cysteine at a site that does not involve the growth hormone receptor binding, so that they could add a linker, 1.3 kilodalton long-chain fatty acid, that allows binding to endogenous albumin to occur. So it improves its ability to bind to albumin in the blood, and that's what actually prolongs the action and availability of growth hormone in the blood. And this method has already been used for several other successful medications using this albumin linker to prolong its action in the blood. And you can see the fluorescence where the red somapacitan is actually in the growth plate in an animal model so that somapacitan is able to penetrate the growth plate to activate the growth hormone receptor in the growth plate to promote linear growth. And so in phase two, they were studying three different doses of once-weekly somapacetan. And at 26 weeks, you can see the different doses compared to daily growth hormone. The 0.16 mg per kg per week group grew the best at 12.9 centimeters per year. And that is the dose that is now being studied in the phase three clinical trial. And we can see at 52 weeks that that difference in growth velocity was maintained such that the 0.16 mg per kg per week somapacitin grew 11.5 cm per year compared to 10 cm per year in the daily growth hormone group, showing that it was statistically superior at one year. Weekly somapacitin demonstrated dose-dependent increases in IGF-1, And we can see the children receiving somapacitan on average at the 0.16 mg per kg per week achieved an IGF-1 SDS that was just above zero standard deviations. Switching to somatrogon, this has the same peptide sequence as human growth hormone, but they have added one copy of the C-terminal peptide of human chorionic gonadotropin to one end of the growth hormone molecule and two copies of that CTP cassette to the other end of growth hormone. The CTP is derived from the portion of HCG that is what causes HCG to last in the blood longer than luteinizing hormone, or LH. So this prolongs the circulatory half-life of growth hormone, allowing for once-weekly administration of somatrogon. And in their phase three global trial, they had children receiving somatrogon once weekly compared to children receiving growth hormone daily for 52 weeks and showed that children receiving somatrogon grew 10.1 centimeters per year and children receiving somatropin grew 9.8 centimeters per year. So this was non-inferior and numerically superior, but not statistically significantly superior compared to the daily group. So to summarize, I've shown you the results from three clinical trials of long-acting growth hormone that have all shown a benefit of growth hormone therapy with once-weekly molecules that is similar after one year of treatment to receiving daily growth hormone therapy. So I think this is promising that there is short-term benefit in long-acting growth hormone therapy demonstrated in these clinical trials. So now I'd like to switch gears and focus on patient-centered care. I think it's important to recognize that the path to successful treatment outcomes in pediatric growth hormone deficiency has to involve a group of people working together. It's the patient, parent, and primary physician initially recognizing a problem and making a referral to the pediatric endocrinologist. The pediatric endocrinologist is responsible for working with the family through the process of diagnosing growth hormone deficiency, and then working with the health insurance company to prescribe and get the prescription filled. And then the patient and the parent are a key component of that team to follow through with treatment. And that group of people has to continue to work well together to make sure that we achieve the best outcomes for the children. So growth hormone deficiency from the perspectives of patients and caregivers can have a significant impact on the child physically as well as quality of life. And so I'd like you to refer to the downloadable practice aid that goes through this in more detail, but you can have physical symptoms where there's reduced strength, endurance, Fatigue, physical impact, where children have reduced performance in physical activities, impacting their ability to perform different functions. And then there's the emotional and social well-being components. The worry about growing, being anxious, embarrassed, poor self-confidence, or difficulty with social unease, teasing, mistaken for being younger, treated differently by adults. So these are all important components of growth hormone deficiency and the burden of disease. We need to listen to our patients. Let's hear from one now.
2: So my name is Andrew, and this is Janelle Olson, and our daughter is a patient of Dr. Miller's. So as we reflect on our diagnostic journey with growth hormone deficiency, uh, we actually have to go back to when our daughter was born uh, when she was born after a healthy and pretty uneventful pregnancy, uh, she would, had pretty substantial neonatal hypoglycemia and needed to be in the NICU for uh, many days and required IV dextrose infusions. And, and um, well, it was just talked up to maybe some sepsis that wasn't found or, or a delayed transition. Um, in retrospect, that was probably one of our first clues uh, that she had growth hormone deficiency Um the other thing we started to notice as well um, is that um, uh, as, as she started to grow as a baby and then as a young toddler she was quite delayed in her on um, gross motor skills um, and uh, had delays in her um, uh, crawling and her rolling and her sitting up um, and prompting us to seek evaluation from the school district and then eventually physical therapy within our health system uh, all under the attentive eyes of our pediatrician
0: um, and our pediatrician was very proactive of course had been monitoring her growth along. So we had been keeping track of this, but it was very proactive and referred us to endocrinology. Um, And so as part of the initial endocrinology workup and diagnosis, we had the blood tests done. we had the growth hormone stimulation test done. It's pretty unpleasant. Which was, yeah, that was definitely a harder one. Um, it was the fasting test. And so um, fasted overnight and also fasted during the test. And, you know, knowing now or that she is was at that point very deficient in growth hormone, she... Um, didn't fare so well during the test, it was throwing up continually throughout it, just wasn't tolerating that at all. So I think we actually ended up stopping it early and then the results came back and she very clearly failed um, in terms of the growth hormone stimulation. And then the CT...
2: And she had an MRI, MRI. of her um, brain to, to evaluate for any pituitary abnormalities. And. And uh, while that wasn't a source of anxiety for us, I know we had some family members who were pretty worried about what that MRI was gonna show. Um, But after all that, we um, were able to arrive at her diagnosis of um, growth hormone deficiency and and, um, pretty promptly then start treatment.
1: Thank you to the Olson family for sharing their valuable insights. I mentioned earlier that there are challenges with adherence to growth hormone therapy and that treatment itself has burdens. Patients or caregivers all commented and show that a significant number of children experience bruising, feel that the injections are painful, and feel that the injections cause stinging. The other challenges associated with administration of growth hormone therapy include challenges with storage of the medication and not have to be mixed before use.
0: Yeah. So regarding treatment, um, we first started, you know, I think with a three-year-old, the thought of giving daily shots was a bit jarring (laughs) to us and probably more to us than to her. Um, But we started with the the daily injectable growth hormone. And um, I know that my biggest fear when we started it was whether it would work. Um, At that point, you know, we knew she was had this deficiency and so just you know wanting normalcy and um, also concern about adapting our three-year-old to getting daily shots and just accommodating that um so addressing that logistic part um you know when she was little she would watch a little clip on our ipad every time we gave her a shot kind of pre during and post um to something short but that was our routine for
1: Couple years. Quite a
0: while. Yeah, probably a couple of years. Um, and quite honestly, she adjusted quite quickly to, um, in terms of just um, adapting to it and, and expecting it and having that be part of our evening. We would do it every night before bed. Um,
2: yeah. And I, I, it's really just become part of our life. Our daughter's been doing it now for six years or so about. Yeah. Uh, and uh, sometimes on her birthday, we'll count how many times, how many shots he's had and say you're incredibly strong and we're really proud of her. Uh, it's, it's become very much a non-issue. It's part of what we do in our life. When we travel, we take it with us. Uh, when she goes to stay with grandpa and grandma, we've taught them how to do it. Uh, there's um, When people have st- a few times have stayed, we've taught them as well. Um, and so I think she's very well adapted to this.
0: Regarding giving our daughter daily growth arm injections, right now she's at home with us lives at home with us so it's it's not a big deal but we do think about what if she wants to go to an overnight camp what if she wants to go in a sleepover what if she wants to go backpacking um, all those types of things and just accommodating a daily injection there it starts to get a little more complicated or anytime we have a grandparent um, take care of our kids then we record a video to show them how to do it Anytime we travel, we're making sure a, hotel, have a refrigerator. It's right. a refrigerator. We have an ice pack and in, in the car and all those types of things. So certainly thinking about doing a weekly or monthly or whatever it might be longer acting. Um, Growth hormone could be really nice. I, I will say I, it, it is also a part of the fabric of our daily lives and we remember it every night. So I think that also, um, you know, changing that interval could be challenging initially as well because we're very used to the daily. So I think um, accommodating a different schedule would take some adjusting in all of our parts. Um, but the daily logistics would, would definitely lighten um, in ways that we've just grown very accustomed to having to accommodate
1: Thank you for sharing those valuable insights. We wanna make sure that the physician knows how people want to be involved in that decision, that we've provided different options for treatment of the medical condition, asking patients which option they prefer, making sure that they understand all of the available information about the medications, have explained those advantages and disadvantages of the different treatment options, and then together weighing those options giving people time to weigh those options, and then together coming to a decision about selecting treatment options and agreeing on how to proceed. I think this is an important process that we may do without even thinking about it, but I think it's an important Thing that we reassess this process and also that we reassess the decision that we make that as a child and their family experience treatment, that we make sure that continuing treatment is the right decision for the child and for the family. I think it's important that we individualize treatment. I am a proponent of IGF-1-based dosing because IGF-1 is the pharmacodynamic marker of growth hormone sensitivity. IGF-1 levels do correlate with growth outcomes. It's easily applied to clinical practice by obtaining IGF-1 levels. It also helps us to identify compliance issues. So if the IGF-1 levels are low, it can be one of the signals to us that the child is no longer taking their medication as well as they used to. This can also help us transitioning from one life phase to another. So as we have children completing therapy and for linear growth and transitioning to adult dosing, in adulthood, the IGF-1 levels are the goal rather than a growth velocity. It could potentially optimize cost-benefit because some children are so sensitive to growth hormone that if you have an IGF-1 in your target range, you can actually reduce the dose It does protect from theoretical concerns of high IGF-1 by adjusting if the levels are high and can be considered a major safety assurance strategy in those parameters. So what are the typical concerns of adolescent patients? I mentioned that this group of patients tends to be the least adherent. Kids are self-administering the medication without supervision. There's treatment fatigue There's continued reassessment of expectations. We really need to say your growth should be slowing down now and is not going to be growing as fast as it was in the past as you're getting closer to being done growing. That it's really essential that you take the medication during the peak of puberty to get the best outcome. And then there's the challenges of compliances of adolescents as they seek independence and become more active. So school sports, school trips, after-school activities, jobs, etc., And also counseling them as to the risks and benefits so that if they do have growth hormone deficiency, that they'll be convinced to continue treatment in adulthood when it's warranted. And it's a difficult decision because as mentioned earlier, it's a silent disease and it's even more silent when you're done growing that you would have negative outcomes from growth hormone deficiency that treatment could prevent. So I think it's really important that we set expectations for persistent growth hormone treatment in patients who will need to transition into adulthood on growth hormone therapy, children that have multiple pituitary hormone deficiencies, and they don't even need additional testing. You are just going to have to continue treatment. In those children who are done growing, we reevaluate the somatotropic axis for persistent growth hormone deficiency. If there is deficiency of one pituitary hormone, if you have idiopathic isolated growth hormone deficiency, or after radiation, the use of IGF-1-based dosing can optimize the necessary dose adjustment of the pubertal growth hormone dose, highly individualized with significantly lower doses, often getting the same benefit. So I think one of the big questions that I have in the development of long-acting growth hormones is, will they actually be better than daily? So daily growth hormone is inconvenient, painful, and distressing daily injections, leading to a lack of adherence, which then leads to reduced efficacy and increased healthcare costs. And my hope is that long-acting growth hormone, whether it's weekly, twice a month, monthly, may improve the overall outcomes via improved adherence superior serum IGF-1 levels, and superior metabolic actions. The challenge with long-acting growth hormone is that the non-physiologic profile may be beneficial, but could have some different side effects based upon the differences in the molecule and the differences in how we deliver it. We are currently conducting a study at the University of Minnesota to understand the adherence, quality of life, clinical response, and safety of both daily and long-acting growth hormone therapy and have developed a questionnaire to help us quantify that and this is available in the downloadable practice aid. So I'd like to wrap up with some key takeaways. Diagnosis of pediatric growth hormone deficiency is based on growth, oxology, medical history from the patient and family, routine clinical testing by the pediatrician and then routine endocrine testing by the pediatric endocrinologist. A bone age is an important component of that diagnosis, and for most children, an MRI of the head is beneficial when a diagnosis of pediatric growth hormone deficiency is made before starting growth hormone therapy or as part of the initial evaluation. Provocative testing is required by peers before they will cover pediatric growth hormone treatment. It's important to use standardized assays. And if test results are normal, children may still have growth hormone deficiency based on other criteria. So it is not the only way to diagnose growth hormone deficiency. Recombinant human growth hormone is the mainstay for growth hormone deficiency therapy because it increases annual height velocity, but our near-adult heights for patients with pediatric growth hormone deficiency are still not quite where we would like them to be. Daily injections have a high treatment burden for patients and caregivers, which may reduce the quality of life. Various technologies to prolong growth hormone action have been employed, and long-acting growth hormone in once-weekly formulations are becoming available, which may increase annual height velocity versus daily growth hormone with reduced treatment burden and improved quality of life. I think it's important to recognize that the concerns of patients and parents may change before and after treatment initiation, and we have to be aware of that to help make sure that they're compliant with whichever therapy we're offering. Shared decision-making will become increasingly important as more treatment choices become available for pediatric growth hormone deficiency, and there are tools available that can help ensure that you, your patients, and their parents can agree on a plan and continue to modify that plan as needed. That concludes this educational activity. I hope you found it informative and useful to your practice. Thank you very much for participating.
0: This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash VUG 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk Incorporated.